Well, good morning. morning. We're in the book of Jude. Before we get started, let me just dismiss children. If you're here for Children's Church, now is the time for you to go. While the rest of us are opening our Bibles to this little epistle, this little book called Jude. It is, if you have a Bible, open it. If not, there are Bibles in the back. Grab one. It's our gift for you. Um, If you go to the back of the Bible, you'll, you'll see the maps. And then right before that, you have the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament. And right before Revelation is the book of Jude. It is the second to last book of our New Testament. And what we like to do here at King's Chapel is go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We did 72, I think, sermons in the book of John, uh, Gospel According to John, not that long ago. And uh, we as pastors pray and we seek, you know, where does God want us to go? New Testament, Old Testament, and we, we look, we pray, where's the church at in this particular place and time? And we've landed on Jude. It's a wonderful, uh, a wonderfully, uh, a wonderful book written, I think, for the season of the church as we get ready to launch into a, a five-part series on the Reformation as well because it's about contending for the faith. And in a culture in which we live in where there are no absolute truths, it is under attack in our postmodern culture, and there is some in our religious circles that don't understand grace and law, and they misunderstand it and misrepresent it. And Jude will deal with that. he deal with absolute truth, the contending for the faith, and dealing with the perversion of grace. That's what Jude is all about. So, turn there with me. I'm going to read the first two verses I really thought we were going to get to verse 2 today, but we're not. But I'm going to read it anyway. So if you're new here or you haven't been with us that long, uh, we go through books of the Bible. We spend time, I'm going to spend half our time together talking about the book, giving you some background, some context before we jump into the book, because then otherwise you're drinking Kool-Aid and and selling uh, incense in the airport. That's not good. So Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter if I say that, it's because I'm saying it. But anyway, Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God and the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's verse 2. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to talk about who this author is, because that's important, and talk about the original occasion of the book. As I said, it's important to understand the context. So who is the author, and what is the original uh, occasion of the book, or the purpose of the book? So you'll see here, his name is Jude. If you do a study in the Bible, and you look up the name Jude, you won't find it anywhere but here, in chapter 1, and in, in, in the first uh, verse of Jude. That's because in the original language, in the Greek language, it is, the, it is the name Judas. Hebrew, Judah, praise. The biblical writers put the Bible together, used the word Jude, kind of abbreviating for Judas, because when you think of Judas in the New Testament, who do you think of? Judas Iscariot, yeah. The betrayer sold out Jesus for 30 shekels, yeah, that guy. So we're not going to turn to the book of Judas, because that may confuse you. So where it's the book of Jude. Now, also if you read the New Testament, you'll find the Greek name Judas. Five different men hold that name in the New Testament, Judas, a.k.a. Jude. The first one is Judas Iscariot. He hung himself, so he didn't write this book. Because there's some debate. Who is this Jude? It's not Judas Iscariot. He's dead. There's a Judas that's in Acts chapter 5. 
He's an infamous revolutionary who, it says, drew away some of the people after him. He perished, and all who followed him scattered. So it's not that Judas either, Jude. Then in Acts chapter 15, if you're reading your Bible in in, in the New Testament, Acts 15, there's a man by the name of Judas, also known as Barsabbas. He's a prophet sent to Antioch with the important decision from the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Could be him, doubtful, didn't really have a connection with any um, close companion with any apostle, uh, didn't really meet the standard of writing scripture, it's probably not him. The fourth one is found in Luke 6. He's actually one of the 12 apostles. It says this, Judas, one of the 12, son of James, not brother of James. Jude 1 says Judas, servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James. So this Judas, not Iscariot, the different Judas, one of the 12 apostles, is the son of James. Doesn't sound like him either. But when you get to the gospel according to Mark and Matthew, Mark 6, it says this, on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. And they said, where did this guy, all right, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand, Jesus' hand? And then they mock him. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters with us? In Matthew 13, same thing, coming to his hometown, taught in the synagogue. They were astonished. They said, is not his mother... The one called Mary, this guy who's teaching in the synagogues with this power, isn't his mother Mary, isn't his brothers James and, and Joseph and Simon and Judas with us and his sisters? So clear, Jesus had four half-brothers, two of them named Judas and James. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Paul writes in Galatians 1 that he saw no other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church in the first century. Who's Jude? A half-brother of Jesus. Now, some of you may come from a tradition that taught that Mary and Joseph did not have any children. They hold to the idea of this perpetual virginity of Mary, and it comes from a very skeptical, uh, apocalyptic book, Apocryphal book written well after the New Testament was established. Apocryphal means that somebody writes a a, a gospel or a story and then they assign it to the name of an apostle to give it some kind of credibility or authority. This book was written, they say, by James, but James has already been dead for a long time. And this, this false book was written and it talked about the perpetual virginity of Mary, but we know that there's no shred of biblical evidence claiming that Mary didn't have any children. Actually, the opposite is true. Matthew 1, Joseph woke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, that's sexual intimacy, knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Pretty clear. Some claim that when you read about Jesus' brothers and sisters, uh, you're really talking about his cousins. Well, There is a Greek word for cousin that's never used in in the context of the family of Jesus, never. Some say that Joseph had other children by another wife, so Mary was like stepmom. No scriptural evidence for that whatsoever. The Catholic Church holds her virginity to be a sign of her faith. 
unadulterated, the catechism says, by any doubt, and of her undivided gift of herself to God's will, end quote. So in other words, if she violated this gift that she's given to God, she, having sexual intimacy with her husband, having children, she's no longer the, the queen of heaven or the mother of God. But the scripture tells us that it is very good. It is given to us by God, sex created by God for us in the context of covenant marriage. It's quite okay to have children when you're married. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, it's an obligation within a marriage context. And all the married men just woke up. Really? It's an obligation in the marriage context? Okay, I'm glad you're with me. Anyway, so James is this unique book written by a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who actually had breakfast, lunch, and dinner with Jesus. It was pretty cool. He had breakfast together. They played together. They went to the synagogue together. Can you imagine growing up in the home of Jesus, being his younger brother? But mom, I'm telling you, he, he's lying. He hit me first. to be like, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Any other, anything else you want to tell me, Judas? Anything else? It wasn't my fault. It was his fault. No, he's the perfect one. You go to your room. You know, that's the way it would go. Now, what's interesting, too, is Jude, Judas, Jude, didn't believe in Jesus. He, he was not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ pre-resurrection. In fact, in Mark 3, it says that his family came, his brothers and sisters and his mom came to get Jesus because they said he was out of his mind, Mark 3. But now, post-resurrection... They both write their epistles. James writes an epistle. Jude writes an epistle. Half-brothers of Jesus. And they both say they're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Jesus made a personal appearance to his half-brother James, who again became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, after Jesus ascended to the heaven, you find these disciples gathered in this upper room. Who's there? Mary. And Jesus' brothers, they're in prayer. They're devoting themselves to prayer, and they're waiting. And you see the brothers there. What made the difference? What made the change? The empty tomb. He's alive. That'll change you. They, they knew he went into the grave, and they knew he rose from the dead. And that changed everything. That changed everything for Paul, who was killing Christians. And Jesus came and, and knocked him off his horse, he's alive, and the resurrection changed everything. Now, let me give you quickly this outline. I like outlines. Some of you may not. That's okay. I'm giving it anyway. The book opens with a salutation, a greeting from the author, verses 1 and 2. We saw that. And then in verse 3 and 4 of this short little book, 3 and 4, is the purpose and the occasion of the letter. And Jude wants us to know and wants the church to know at that time that, that well, he's warning them that there's false teachers who are perverting the grace of God and denying the lordship of Christ and, 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 and to take this action to stand and contend for the faith. That's the purpose. That's the, that's the warning. Then he gets into the body of the letter, verses 5 through 17, and it's very interesting. He loves threes. We're going to see that this week, and we'll see that next week. He gives, in verses 5 through 7, he gives three scriptural examples as a way to say, let, re, let, let me remind you, let me warn you from these Old Testament stories and the destiny of those who rebel against the truth of God. They are condemned. Remember this story in the Old Testament. He gives us three stories in the Old Testament. Then he takes this 
previous failures found in the Old Testament, and he brings it to the present situation that's going on in the church. And you'll find in verses 8 through 16. If you have your Bibles, you'll see in verse 8, he says, yet in like manner these people, he's talking about the heretics, he's talking about the, the heresy in the church. Verse 10, but these people... Again, he's pointing to the false teachers in the church of that day. Verse 12, these are hidden reefs, reefs at your love feasts. They're among you. And then he beautifully takes that and he, and he compares it again to Old Testament stories. We'll see that in a moment. At the end of the body of the letters, verses 4 through 16, he just sums it up with one final narrative of the coming condemnation of false teachers. He says, this is their end guaranteed. So the body is between 5 and 16. And then in verse 17, he kind of changes his tune. And he wants to encourage them. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said this to you. You remain faithful. You remain in love. You remain uh, building yourself up in the love of God. That's verses 7 through 23. He exhorts them. And then he concludes in this beautiful, beautiful doxology. We'll be there in six weeks. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. That's the outline. And what's interesting, if you read 2 Peter, which we went through 2 Peter a few years back, you'll notice that 2 Peter, especially chapter 2, and Jude, many of the verses almost seem, they're not the same, but they have the same kind of idea and thinking. Peter's writing about the coming apostasy, this coming away, this, this falling away from truth, this desertion of truth. Peter talks about the coming apostasy, and Jude is talking about the present apostasy, this present falling away from the truth. And some theologians believe that Peter borrowed from Jude, that Jude had written his letter to some churches, maybe in Asia Minor, and Peter had a copy of it, and while he was writing his second epistle, he borrowed from Jude and talked about the same apostasy that was going on. The interesting thing is, Peter was martyred around 65 AD. He wrote his second epistle around 63. So Jude writes his letter somewhere in the beginning of the 60s AD, about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to these churches that obviously have some sort of Jewishness in their, in their background or in their culture. So a lot of times you had mixed, you had Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews together. But whoever's receiving this letter, uh, Jude takes the... Um, Jude takes the position or the freedom to talk about you know, Jewish apocalyptic literature, Jewish traditions, and, and, and hoping, uh, probably believing that the people who receive this letter would understand what he's talking about. Now, Jude, look at verse, with me to verse 4. I think I have it up there, yeah. So Jude is writing to a particular situation. He doesn't name them. He doesn't tell them who they are. But he gives us a description of what's going on in the church. It's important to understand this. Verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They look like us. They smell like us. They act like us. They're not one of us. They crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation, he'll write about that, ungodly people who do what? 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way to pervert grace. There's a way to pervert grace. That's what they were doing. Some scholars think it had something to do with Gnosticism, which, which taught a lot of things. But one of the things Gnosticism uh, taught was that your body is, is evil, it's bad, and your spirit is good. Whatever you do in the body doesn't really matter. It doesn't, you know, you can do whatever you want. There was, there was all this, this wickedness and immoral behavior. Some people think that, you know, he's writing to this Gnostic teaching Maybe Gnosticism didn't come into the, really into the second century. Uh, it was very, very uh, infancy. It was a very, it was at an infancy form in the sixties. What I've read this week, though, and which makes perfect sense as you read this book, is if you recognize that Jude is writing this letter to people in the church because they are promoting what is called antinomianism. All right, so that's why you pay me for those big words: antinomianism, anti-Greek, meaning against. Uh, excuse me. Anti meaning against and, 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 and nomianism meaning the law. Against the law, there is no law theologically. Uh, antinomianism is a belief that there are no moral laws God expects believers to obey. Law has no place, no bearing in the life of God's people. That's the heresy that they were teaching. They, they were part of the church, verse 12, love feast. They were, they were immoral, manipulative teachers full of pride, causing division, verse 19. Their conduct was, in effect, a denial, it says, of the lordship of Christ. Perverting the grace of God, denying the lordship of Christ. That's what was going on in the church. Antinomianism, it's called. Well, it's a very interesting book. I, I hope you read it. I hope you read it regularly. It, it's only 25 short verses, uh, Scholars say it's one of the, the most neglected books of the entire New Testament. It, it quotes, it has some funny facts in it. Uh, it quotes books from uh, outside biblical sources. First Enoch alludes to the assumption of Moses. Uh, and, it, and I find that it's going to be helpful for us because we're in an age and a, and a time in which when you stand up for truth or you believe in a certain faith, which James says in verse 4, uh, verse 3, contend for the faith, that body of truth that's been delivered to you by the saints. When you do that, you come off as being a self-righteous jerk. Meanwhile, when you make that absolute claim, as we do, those who say that is not true are making an absolute claim, but we're the ones that are making a claim. It doesn't make any sense, but we'll talk about that as, as we move on. When you make an absolute truth claim these days, um, you're, 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 you're kind of looked at in a very funny way. Now, we don't want to be a jerk about it, for sure. But there is a body of truth that Jude tells us that we are to contend for. And we'll talk about that. In fact, we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. Now, before we get into this, let me, let me just point out one other thing about this opening verse. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude acknowledges his allegiance to Christ, calls himself a servant and what is so obvious and so beautiful in this verse is Jude's humility. I mean, if I was writing this letter, I would begin this way. Lou, the half-brother of God himself who became man, who hung out with God regularly, 
played with him and listened to him regularly. You should listen to me. That's what I would write, right? We were in the same room together. We rode our bikes together. In fact, I was the closest sibling of them all. I might even do a book tour. You know, you don't know. Maybe make some money, go along, go, go get on the road. Not Jude. Jude calls himself a servant. Actually, the word is not diakonos, where we get servant from. Actually, the Greek word is doulos, where the word slave comes from. Unlike the false teachers who pervert grace, deny the lordship of Christ, who reject authority, being full of pride, Jude's not like that. Jude, Jude's the guy that could easily identify himself as the brother's of Jesus, but he views his life in terms of slavery to a master. He didn't begin his letter by emphasizing, as I would, the privilege of his brotherly relationship to Jesus, but his submission to Christ's lordship. Now, we have a certain 21st century mind, Western thinking, when we, when we throw out the word slave. But let me tell you, in the first century, Okay, that slaves in that day had no freedom and no rights. They owned nothing. They, they had no legal remedy. There was no courts would listen to them. They had no citizenship. They were dependent on those who owned them. It, 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 sometimes in those days, they had some benefits. They were, they were provided for. They were protected. They were, they were treated kindly and compassionately. But still, they were owned. The, 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 the Roman philosophical understanding and social uh, way of life Freedom was the pinnacle of life, being free, not slavery. In fact, slaves were scorned. The slave had two things to do, obey his master, obey his master, and always go about pleasing his master. We as Americans love our freedoms, and I praise God for the men and women who serve our nation I praise God for the freedoms that we have, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, our freedom is not unrestricted freedom. In fact, only those who are God's slaves truly experience genuine freedom. Why? Because the scripture tells us that we are either two things. One, we are a slave to sin, and we're bound by that, and and at the end, the wage of sin is death, or we are slaves of Christ. Belong to God. Slaves to sin, deserving death. Slaves to Christ and his righteousness. That's, that's it. That's all there is in scripture. Those two realities. And Jesus sets us free from the bondage and the power of sin when he dies as a payment for our sins on the cross. And someday we will be in glory and he will purge sin from our lives. As professing Christians, we are slaves of Christ. Our allegiance is for him. We renounce all other masters. Romans 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, being more like Christ, and its end, eternal life. That's the problem. That's the principle. That's the principle. So, do you see yourself that way? Are, are, do you see the kind of humility that Jude is talking about as he serves his God? Do we humbly accept the fact that we are not our own? We have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. That's the paradox of the Christian life. One cannot be totally free until one is totally submissive. That's the paradox of the Christian life. 
There's something else I want you to see here. This letter is a letter, as you see, contending for the faith. To contend for the faith. Verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, that's what I wanted to do, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's a call to action. It's a call to response. It's a call to, to stand up and to contend for the faith. And many people, when they love Jude, they know that verse. You know, any quote me, any verse from Jude, they'll be, contend for the faith. You know, it's easy to bypass the first two verses. It's easy to bypass the exhortation of grace. And the exhortation of mercy that God has shown to us. And go right to verse 3. Contending for the faith. We must not rush over verses 1 and 2. We, you know, I, I worked for the state for a long time. And you know, you go to training every year. The same training every year. The same training every year. The same training every year. And by the 25th year, you're like, you know, comatose city, right? That's not what... We need to do here. Jude will lay out all kinds of reasons to contend for the faith. It was being hijacked. It has eternal consequences. Jude writes in verse 21, to keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. So there, there's, there is serious stuff here. But Jude starts out and wants us to know first and foremost the truth of the gospel. Like a bank teller who is being trained to recognize a counterfeit bill, studies real money very closely. Then they can recognize the faith. Yes, we are to contend. Yes, we are to stand for the truth. But first, we must recognize the grace of God. Not perverting the grace of God, but the truth of the grace of God in the gospel. Rather than jumping right into contending, Jude wants us to understand the grace of God. And I'll tell you why. Number one, because we need to know the truth, right? We need to know the truth. We need to know what body of truth we are contending for. But let me tell you something else. The reason that we know to know the gospel, or the truth of the grace of the gospel, is because it will keep us humble. It'll keep us humble. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even a garment stained by the flesh. Humility. Gospel truth before contending. Gospel truth before contending. And what is Jude, what is Jude reminding them of? What is Jude reminding us of the gospel? This humble half-brother and slave of Jesus Christ, the Messiah? We'll see three things. We'll see three things, three divine graces that are true for every believer that will humble us greatly. Number one, it's the gospel call of God. Not your call, his call. Number two, the gospel love of God. Number three, the gospel keeping of God. The call, the love, and the keeping of God. To those, look what it says in verse one. To those who are called, kletos, called of God. Called of God does not simply mean that he initiates, he invites us, as if he's just inviting us to himself. When the word called, kletos, is used in the New Testament, 
It is the gospel call of the special invitation of God, whereby he calls us to himself through the preaching of the word, combined with the internal illumination of the spirit of God, and to those who hear the message, repent of their sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and joyfully walk with him all the days of his life. That's the call he's talking about. The same God who elects his people also ordains the means in which he calls. We're not, we're not talking about the general call. We're not just talking about for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That gospel call for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and everyone needs to hear the good news of the gospel, repent from your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about the general call here. That broad sweeping call, that outward invitation. We're talking about the call of God that renews and regenerates the heart. The call of God that creates life in a dead person's soul. It's referred to sometimes as the effectual call or the efficacious call. And people say, well, if I'm dead in my sin and God calls me, then I'm just going to respond. I must be just a robot. I hear that all the time. No, it doesn't. The Bible is very clear that we are to respond to the call with real choices and real decisions. The gospel call of God that awakens the soul doesn't violate our will, it liberates it. When that day came and you made that real choice to follow Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, that, my friends, is not part of the work of salvation, it is the result of salvation. The call of God is always successful. The call of God always, always awakens souls. Let me give you two verses. 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, the setting part of the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our God and Lord and Savior, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, a separate calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, where? Before the age began. That's the holy calling. That's the call that renews. That's the call that awakens. That's the call of God that shows us the beauty and the glory of Christ. One of the ways that you can remember what the call of God means, I, I love this illustration, it's right from the Bible, is John chapter 11. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. Great picture, great illustration of the call of God. Lazarus dead in the grave, nothing he can do to come out of the grave. We are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead. Lazarus is dead. Nothing he can do to come out of the grave. We are just as dead as Lazarus in our sin. God calls him out. Just as God called out Lazarus from the dead, he calls us and gives us new life. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, it is because God called you with a holy calling. It is a gift. It is completely of grace and grace alone. Some say it like this. This is not God's invitation to be saved. It is God's determination to save. And, and truly seeing this, I think this is why Jude is writing this, to truly see that it was a call of God to my dead heart to awaken my soul, to see the beauty and glory of Christ, that should humble me, that should give me great delight and gratitude to God. 
Because before you came to know God, God came to you and revealed himself to you to know him. And Jude says, listen, this is different than the false teachers. This is in contrast to the false teachers who are prideful and selfish. And Jude said, no, you're the called of God. You're the called of God. You're, you're, you're not following the ways of the heretic that are, that are disrupting the community, that are, that are dividing people. No, we are collectively the call of God. We are the people of God. Jude is a Jew. And when he says called, he's using classic Old Testament language for the people of God who were called by God to be his people, the call of Abraham to come out and to follow, the call of God's people to come out of Egypt, the call of God that makes God's people God's people. And Judah's saying when you're being persecuted, when, when you got to contend for the faith, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You are the called. You're the called, like Abraham was called, not just for his own story, but for a greater story. To be called and to be sent as missionaries into the world, into the culture, into the, the land to declare and demonstrate the beauty and the glory of Christ. And what is so interesting, and track with me, I hope you have your Bibles open. What's so interesting is the second part of verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And I'm not a Greek scholar, I just read my uh, study, when I studied the actual word called is the last word in that sentence. It is the main word, it is the last word in the sentence. It comes at the end of the Greek sentence. Okay? So in other words, what you can do is you can read this. It could, it could, you can actually read it this way. We are beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ since we are called. The word loved and the word kept are passive verbs, meaning the action is upon us. So God is loving us. God is keeping us. And because of the call of God, we are loved by God. We are kept by God. Loved and kept, passive verbs, stressing action of God. God calls, God loves, God keeps. The call of God. Look at next, the gospel love of God. The gospel love of God. To those who are called beloved in God the Father, Dr. Schreiner writes, believers have been loved by God the Father and his effective love is the reason they belong to the people of God, end quote. What what was there in us? What was there in you? What was in there of us that God should call you? There is no other source than his love for you. God calls you to himself because he loves you. If not for the love of God, if not for the love of God calling me to himself, where would I be? the horror of thinking of where I would be if God did not, in his love, call me out of darkness into his marvelous life. God's love is steady. God's love is rooted in the cause of his call. When you look past the call of God, you see the love of God. And look what he says. He says, beloved, love, agape, in God the Father. It's almost as if we're being engulfed. It's not just that God loves us, but in God. We are engulfed in God's love. We are guaranteed that God's love will not fail us. God's love will protect us from the outside and strengthen us from the inside. We need to be assured of the love of God. If you're a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to be assured of the love of God. Because sometimes, sometimes, and maybe you're here this morning and this is you. Sometimes when I say that God loves you, you think, yeah, all right. 
Well, he has to. He puts up with me. He tolerates me. That's not what it means. That is not what it means. Sometimes we have this idea that God's not very happy with me. He's waiting for me to mess up. It's this regular way we see the disposition of God's heart, not a loving father who loves his children. If you are uncertain about the love of God, if you're not sure that God loves you unconditionally, then when you open up the Bible and you begin to read the scriptures, you will not drink of its beauty. You will not see the beauty of Christ because you don't understand God's love. When you go to pray and you bow your head and you're ready to pray, if you're not sure of the abundant love and everlasting love of God, you will not pray and come to the throne of God correctly. You'll be afraid to come. You may not, you may not see his love. It, it affects us in all kinds of areas of our life. Is it a safe place? Can I come to God? If you are not growing in the grace and knowledge of the love of God, you'll be defenseless against dealing with your heart honestly and having this re- uh, retrospective view of, of, of the things you've done wrong and times you need to repent. You, you, you'll think that God is uh, against you and condemns you. You'll be defenseless against legalism, condemnation, despair. There'll be no real joy in your life if you're not growing in the grace and knowledge and the love of God. But, family, but, if you are growing in God's love, you are able to be honest with God because God loves you as you are. If you're growing in love, you will fight against legalism because, you're going to fight against legalism because we're not clinging to what we do, we are clinging to the unmerited love of God. He is our anchor. His love is our anchor. If you're growing in God's love, you'll remember and recite regularly that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You'll read Romans 8 toward the end with great joy when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present Things to come, neither height, depth, or nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, if revisiting your undeserved calling that was produced by God's everlasting, unchanging love does not produce joy, sometimes tears, something's wrong with the way you're seeing and treasuring God. Because he loves you. What manner of love does the Father have for you? The Bible tells us that as the Father loves the Son, as the Son loves the Father, He loves us from all eternity. Here's the problem sometimes, family. Maybe, again, maybe it's you today. Sometimes when we talk about the love of God, what we do is we want to look in our souls, in our hearts. We want to look inward rather than outward. It says, the Scripture says, nothing will separate us from the love of God in you. No. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are you looking inward? Are you searching for a reason? Are you looking outward and looking to Christ? See, if you're looking inward, what you're looking for is some way to contribute to somehow earning, somehow giving back to God something so that you can deserve his love. That's pride. That's pride. One... Puritan wrote this. 
We have enough, his name is Thomas Watson. We have enough in us to move God to correct us or to judge us, but nothing to move him to adopt us. Therefore, exalt free grace. Bless him with your praises who had blessed you in making you his sons and his daughters, end quote. You'll never find something inside of yourself of the reason, the cause of God's love. You gotta look to Jesus Christ. Another Puritan wrote this. He's preaching in a sermon on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is what he writes. Listen to this. In this sermon, 200 years ago. Love is at the bottom of all. We may give a reason of other things, but we cannot give a reason of his love. God showed his wisdom, his power, justice, and holiness in our redemption by Jesus Christ. If you ask why, why he made so much ado about a worthless creature raised out of the dust of the ground at first and had now disordered himself and could be of no use to him, we have an answer at hand because he loved us. If you continue to ask, he writes, but why did he love us? We have no other answer but because he loved us. For beyond this, first rise, we cannot go. It's the same reason that God gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you or chose you, talking about the people of Israel, because you were more in number or few in number, but because the Lord loved you. Now catch this, last sentence, very theological, so put your theological hat on. That is, in short, he loved you because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. All came from his free and undeserved mercy. Higher we cannot go in seeking after the causes of what is done for our salvation, end quote. Does that mystify you? I wrote befuddled in my notes. <laughs> Are you completely befuddled by his love? I am. Each and every passing day as I continue to be such a jerk, I become more and more befuddled at God's love for me. There is more in me to warrant his anger and judgment, and yet God loves me. Why? Because he loves me. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. I know that's very theological, but what a beautiful, wonderful mystery to relish in. Why, oh why, God, do you love me? Because I love you. We are called. We are loved. And finally, we are kept. The keeping of the gospel. Now, this verse could be explained two ways. It could say this. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ or kept for Jesus Christ. You might have a note in your, in your Bible. It's either by Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. So whether we are beloved in God the Father and kept by Christ, or we are beloved by God the Father and kept for Christ, I think it's safe to say that Jude's confidence rests in God's initiative and his preserving power, which will bring to an end that in which God began. Those whom God has called to himself are loved by him and kept until the day of salvation. That's what he's saying. The grace of God that called believers to faith will sustain them until the end. God has not let go of us. God will not let go of us. Specifically, while there is false teaching in the church, a disruption in perversion of grace, and Jude's saying, listen, if you're called and you're loved, you're going to be kept. You're going to be kept by God. 
No matter what's going on, no matter what peddling nonsense that are people doing in the church, you are called, you are loved, you are kept. I'm reminded of John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said. I know them. They follow me, Jesus talking. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Double negative. Never, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what Jesus says. And then he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. I and the father are one. God does not promote Human passivity, if understood correctly, the love of God will stir us up to love him in return. Verse 21, keep yourself in God's love, Jude tells the people. However, family, the ultimate reason believers will persevere against the inroads of false teachers is the grace of God by which he sets his love and calling upon the believers and calls to himself. He promises to persevere with them until the end. Being kept is very important. And very important in this letter. Being kept, Jude uses it four times, once negative in this short little 25 verse. So as we conclude, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. He wants us to realize the call to contend, this action to contend is not dependent upon us finally, but is the Lord who will keep us until the end. In their diligence, in their, in their dependency, in their obedience to contend for the faith, it is God that will keep them to the end. Verse 24, the end of the little epistle. Right? You have nothing to fear. You're called, you're loved, you're kept. Now to him who is able to what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. From start to finish, the emphasis, the security of the believer is by the omnipotent power of God. And we persevere with the purpose we are to give him glory. Even in the midst of apostasy, God will have his way with his people and we will be able to stand, we will will be able to be presented before our glorious God with great joy. Judah's saying, be confident. Kept by the power. You're called by Christ. Loved by God. In the midst of apostasy, you are protected by the sovereignty of God. John Calvin writes this, at any moment Satan might snatch us a hundred times over into his ready clutches were we not safe in the protection of Christ. End quote. You're called, you're loved, you're kept. So before we take the action, and we'll talk about this next week, it takes your action up and, and contend for the faith, we must be secure in the faith. The Lord has committed himself to keep you from stumbling and to make sure that when the battle is over and the fight is over, you'll be standing in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And how is that possible? It's the gospel. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you could not live. He died an atoning death in your place and then rose from the dead. The tomb is empty and ascended to heaven. And all those who call upon him shall be saved. There's a debt that we owe that we could never pay, and Jesus paid that debt. That's the gospel. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, when you believe upon Jesus Christ, when you rely upon Jesus Christ, not your works, but his work for your salvation, it's like a father has this 
child's hand. And the child has the father's hand. But we know that the safety of that child is because the father has the child's hand. Do you belong to Christ? Have you heard the call? Do you hear the call? Come to Christ. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Jesus who paid the debt for your sin. Come to Jesus. He is alive and well. He will forgive you of your sins. And maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you have not marveled at God's love for you. Lately, let's do that. Let's sing together, All I Have is Christ. And let the joy of the Lord fill this place. And if you don't know Christ, come to him. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him on a mission to die for sin, to rise from the dead. And thank you, you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your spirit to open our eyes to see the beauty and glory and worth of Jesus. And Father, we pray as we sing that you will get glory today, that we, we, your people, will rejoice in you today. And Father, that those who don't know you will come to know you today. Pour out your spirit on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.